You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode takes us to SUNY Albany, where a young girl mysteriously goes missing without a trace. Suzanne Lyle was born to parents Doug and Mary Lyle on April 6, 1978. When she was born, the Lyles already had 12-year-old Stephen and 9-year-old Sandy. Susie, who was the baby of the family, was absolutely adored. She was especially close with her brother. The family lived in Boston Spa, a small town of 5,000 in Saratoga County in upstate New York. Even as a young child, it was evident that Susie was smart, exceptionally intelligent, in fact. Her parents called her a brainiac. She got straight A's all the way through high school without even trying too hard. Susie was very quirky. Some described her as a computer geek, and she was the artsy type. She wrote a lot of poetry even jumping out of running showers to jot down her thoughts in a battered spiral notebook. She also loved to sew, and she bedazzled a lot of her clothes with sequins and a glue gun. She was very comfortable being alone, and she was an introvert who did not seem to seek out the company of other kids her age. Many called her an old soul, but she wasn't depressed or moody. She was very happy. Um, She was always smiling. She was very genuine. Susie's first love was computers. She was a whiz at them. As a child, she would disassemble and rebuild her computer. She would also help her teachers figure out their own computers. She would help to work on the school systems. Susie had a knack for it, and the world of computers became kind of a refuge for her. She was not unhappy or lonely, although she had few friends. She just completely immersed herself in the online world that was growing at a rapid rate in the mid-1990s. In high school, she was already connecting with people in chat rooms online. This is not as dangerous then as it is now, right? Um, It's a little bit of a red flag now if people are meeting people in chat rooms. But back then, it was really just a community of like-minded people. So she was getting together with fellow techies. They would share ideas. um, They would game together. They would discuss their computer's gigabytes or whatever people into computers discuss. Susie decided that she wanted to pursue computer science as a career. When Susie was 16, her computer friend Mike told her about a local group that met regularly at a nearby Denny's. It was a computer club of sorts. Her father took her to the first meeting to kind of vet out the situation, and it was just as advertised. It was just a group of young people sitting around talking about computer technology. Susie joined the group and fell quickly for its president, 17-year-old Richard Condon. Rich went to a different high school than Susie, but the two became inseparable, He and his computer buddies were smart and very computer savvy. They worshipped what was known as the Hacker Manifesto. This was a document that circulated at the time, which had a little bit of an underground illicit tone. But Rich and his friends aspired to be hackers. 
they let Susie participate as well. They would let her hang out in the all-male group and would let her hack into other people's computers. They basically sat inside on screens, dressed in all black before it was cool to do so. Susie was a coffee addict, drinking several cups of coffee a day. Yeah, this totally reminds me of the uh, the movie Hackers. Remember, I think it was like the early 90s or mid 90s. I feel like it also reminds me of To Date Myself, War Games. But that's like an 80s reference and maybe not as applicable. But anyway, point taken. This was all just harmless. And it just illustrated the level of Rich and Susie's shared fascination with this new technology. At one point, they even established their own website provider called Global 2000, which didn't really take off, but it was still pretty impressive considering that they were just teens. Doug Lyle said of Richard that he was serious, very intelligent, and mature beyond his years. Now, Susie's parents said that Rich was very serious, he was intelligent, and mature beyond his years. And at first, they didn't really object to him as a boyfriend for their daughter, Susie. And Susie and Rich would stay together for the next couple of years. During this time, Susie's parents say that they did wish that Susie would move on. They grew to sort of dislike Rich and the effect that he had on their daughter's life. The two teens had developed something of a codependency. They would spend all their free time together or they would be online interacting with each other. They also interlinked their computer so that they could chat virtually. And they basically knew where the other was at all times. I see why this is concerning to her parents. Yeah, I do too. And Rich was the dominant one in the relationship, although I want to make it clear that there is zero evidence of any abuse in the relationship. But he was the dominant one, and these two were, they were both codependent. Rich enrolled in a local college and continued to live at home while he attended classes. He and Susie continued to date all through her senior year. The next year, it was time for Susie to go to college. Her parents wanted her to go to the State University of New York at Oneonta. This was about two hours away, and they w- they preferred her to go there instead of the much closer SUNY Albany. And this was because they wanted to extricate her from the relationship with Rich. And they felt that it would be healthy for her to get some distance. Now, Mary and Susie butted heads over this repeatedly, but in the end, the parents won out, and Susie enrolled at SUNY Oneonta. And Susie pretended to give Oneonta a chance, but she actually didn't. Instead of immersing herself in the college experience— or getting to know her roommates, or enrolling in clubs, Susie did the bare minimum in terms of going to classes, and then she would spend the rest of her time at Rich's house. In fact, Rich's parents would drive to Oneonta and pick Susie up every weekend and bring her back home so she could spend the weekend with Rich. Missed this part, but how far away was Oneonta? Do you know? It was about two hours away, so we're talking about a four-hour road trip. We're talking about a four-hour round trip. And That's this was far. because Susie never, yeah, Susie never got her driver's license. So, you know, driving was not really her thing. She had a terrible sense of direction um, and she just never really looked. She was never interested in getting a license. The bigger issue was that Susie hid all of this from her parents. They did not know that she was going to his home every weekend. They had finally found out one weekend when her mom's grandmother passed away and they had tried to reach Susie all weekend to no avail. Now, despite her parents' disapproval of this whole thing, the pattern continued for the entirety of Susie's freshman year. Susie told her parents that the computer curriculum at Oneonta was not challenging enough for her. And she told her mom that basically she could teach the classes herself and she wanted to transfer. But really, her parents thought that she just wanted to be closer to Rich and it had nothing to do with the curriculum. 
Regardless, Susie made arrangements to transfer to SUNY Albany for her sophomore year. Rich didn't go to school there, but it put her much closer to him and he spent all of his free time in her room with her or she would go to his house. Susie had a part-time job at a local computer store and she would take the bus between her dorm and her place of employment, which was Babbage's Software. It was a local tech chain that was located in a nearby mall. Her boss at Babbage's knew Susie pretty well and described her as friendly and helpful, someone who enjoyed chatting with customers about the products they carried and she would often arm wrestle and banter with her coworkers. Susie also held down a second part-time job in Troy, which was about 10 miles away. Here she would transcribe medical textbooks onto CD-ROMs. Now, this was a tedious technical job, but she needed the money, and she worked hard. Rich and his gaming buddies often hung out at Babbage's store with Susie, along with some of her coworkers. She and Rich continued to be inseparable. Susie's parents really started to resent Rich, finding him cold, impersonable, and lacking in social graces. He held strong opinions, and he often voiced them, and they felt that Susie was becoming more and more like him. Now, Susie was busy. She was working two part-time jobs, she had a full-time course load, and she was struggling, as anyone would. The schoolwork was much harder at Albany than it was at Oneonta, and Susie was in danger of failing a couple of classes. It sounds like she was in danger because she's spending just, you know, way too much time doing other things besides studying. And I understand the need to work in school, too, but it sounds like it was the relationship that was really the problem. I agree. She was very stressed come midterms in the second semester of her sophomore year. Now, at this time, she was living in a large dorm complex on the SUNY Albany Uptown campus. She had some female suite mates, but her roommate left school after the first semester. So by second term, Susie effectively had a single. Mm. Now, Susie was someone who thrived on routine. Her daily life was full of predictable patterns, school, work, meal, computer club meeting, coffee, repeat. I mean, she was in touch with her parents every day. She did not party. She didn't hang out with her suite mates in her dorm She didn't really do anything whimsical or spontaneous. She was very predictable. She just wasn't someone who would go off script. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. In the beginning of March in 1998, it was midterms week at SUNY Albany. And as we said, Susie was in a little bit of a hole academics-wise. Over the weekend, Susie went to her part-time job at Babbage's Software Store, and she told her boss that she was really nervous about her Monday midterm, which was her most important one. On Monday, March 2nd, Susie took her midterm exam as scheduled. That afternoon, she took a bus from the bus stop right on campus near her dorm to the mall where she worked. Now, this was a city bus, but it had stops on the SUNY Albany campus. Susie still did not have her license, and she routinely took this bus to and from work. When she arrived for her four o'clock shift at Babbage's, she told her boss that her exam had gone okay. She put her name tag on and went to work, helping customers, unboxing merchandise, placing sales tags on items, just a normal workday for her. Garland later reported that Susie seemed totally normal, although perhaps a little tired, but this is understandable if she had stayed up late studying. Susie's shift ended at 9 p.m. and she clocked out and left the store. And this is important, Megan. A mall security person saw her head out a back exit of the mall toward the bus stop to take the bus that would bring her back to campus, the one that she usually took. Okay. This exit was closer to the bus stop than the busy main exit to the mall, and it was this exit that she typically used. 
but sorry, they the camera showed the exit, but not the it, it didn't go as far as the bus stop. Correct? It just shows the exit. It actually was a mall security person, so it was an eyewitness account. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. All right, thanks. Susie boarded the number twelve bus that night. After that, she vanished. Now Susie always checked in with Rich when she got home from work. They would often say on the phone or online, attached at the hip, even remotely. On the morning of Tuesday, March 3rd, Rich called Mary and Doug at home. He had not been able to reach Susie all night, and he was worried. Rich said, quote, did you know Susie is missing? This particular language spoken by Rich has raised eyebrows among many who follow the case. It was either just Rich's blunt, direct personality at work, or he was trying to control the narrative, presenting Susie as being missing. He said he had called Susie all night, emailed her, and even accessed her computer remotely to see if she was on it. Now, this might seem like he's overstepping a bit, but it seems like this was the norm with these two, like checking yeah, in this on was the dynamic. Like this is the dynamic of their relationship, so I don't think yeah. for him it was an overstep, or for them it was, but in, in yeah. Yeah, the other world, in the real world, it probably would be, or for other people. Phone records would later show that Rich had called Susie's dorm room nine times throughout the night. By morning, Rich had taken it upon himself to report Susie missing to campus police. His mom, whom he lived with, and who, of course, knew Susie very well, had driven him down there to file a missing persons report. Now, as any parents would be, the Lyles were immediately alarmed. As we explained, it was absolutely out of the question for Susie to just not come home or to go off the grid. Mary called Susie's siblings, Stephen and Sandy, but they had not heard from her either. Doug Lyle called the campus police and made them go to Susie's suite and check her room. You can only imagine his worry while he waited for them to call back with a report on what they found there. But they found nothing. The campus officers located the resident advisor on Susie's dorm floor who opened up the room. Nothing appeared to be out of place. An officer went to her next class to see if she showed up, but she did not attend. It was midterm week and Susie would never, ever have blown off a midterm. Amy, where's the bus stop that drops her off, did you say? She takes a bus back. I wonder how far that bus stop is from campus. That would be, of, you know, of curiosity to me. Yes, we'll get to that. But I will tell you that it was very close, not only to campus, but to her actual dorm. Oh, okay. The campus officers questioned Susie's sweetmates, who said that they never heard her come in that night after work. Usually they would hear her keys jangling in the lock. They had heard her phone ring over and over that night, and that was likely Rich calling, as he said he had. Tired of waiting for someone to do something, Doug got in the car and drove over to the campus safety office, which was about a 30-minute drive from the family's home. Meanwhile, Mary manned the phones at home, calling friends and family, checking area hospitals, and just waiting to see if Susie would call or show up. Campus police went through the motions, but generally they did not take Susie's disappearance seriously. The officers tried to placate Doug, telling him that this kind of thing happened all the time, that college students often flaked out and fell out of contact for a while. They often zip off to New York City with friends, or they bail on exams when things get too stressful. Needless to say, the Lyles were having none of this, although that might be what some students do. That's not what their daughter would have done. That was a common attitude towards, you know, what is probably a serious case and one that we've been able to show is just the wrong Uh, take on this kind of disappearance. Now, Doug refused to leave. He sat in the security office staring, glaring at the campus safety personnel to try to light a fire under them. He was angry that they were not taking it more seriously. 
Meanwhile, Rich took it upon himself to head over to Babbage's as soon as it opened to try to figure out whether Susie had shown up for her shift the previous day, and if so, perhaps they knew where she went afterwards. Her boss at Babbage's consulted with the night supervisor who was on duty when Susie left on Monday night. He said she clocked out at 9 and he didn't see where she went when she left the store, but that she usually went out the back way, a shortcut to the bus stop. He says he didn't notice anything unusual about that evening. Eventually, thanks to the persistence of the Lyles, the state police got involved in the case. And this is when it started to become apparent that Susie hadn't just taken off on a whim. The state police were able to track down the number 12 bus driver who drove that route that night, and he remembered Susie, who was often on his bus. He said he was fairly certain that she got onto the bus that night, but he didn't remember specifically if she got off the bus, but he did know that when the bus arrived at the final stop, she was certainly not on it. So I, I think he's just saying he didn't he doesn't remember seeing her get off, but there's no reason to believe that she's stayed on. Right. The investigators located a doormate of Susie's who had some information. Now, this girl, a student who had not been named, actually lived on the same floor as Susie, and she was very familiar with Susie. They had shared a tiny two-stall dorm shower room. The two girls often found themselves on the same shower schedule. This young woman was adamant that she saw Susie on the night that she vanished. She was interviewed multiple times and never varied her story or waffled. She said she was 100% certain that she saw Susie getting off the bus at the stop right near their dorm. This woman was herself getting on the bus to go to the downtown campus And the two passed as Susie got off and she got on the bus. She says this was around 9.40 or 9.45 p.m. And this fits exactly with the timeline that Susie would have followed according to her normal routine after work. So now we have the bus driver confirming Susie got on the bus. And we have an eyewitness confirming that Susie got off the bus at her normal stop. So then what happened to Susie after she got off the bus? Now, there were two choices. Either she walked away toward her dorm or someone picked her up in a vehicle and drove her away. Now, you asked before, Megan, the walk to the dorm building from the bus stop was only 100 yards along a path that led through some trees, but straight to the dormitory door. I mean, it was not well lit, but it was short and straight. Yeah, but it's also evening time, too. But 9.30 or 9.45 on a college campus, it's, okay. you know, it's not, yeah. you know, evening time in a rural area versus, you know, SUNY Albany. It's true. All right. Now, the dorm entrance was equipped with an electronic card swipe system that kept record of students' comings and goings, and it did not register Susie entering that night. But of course, as anyone who had lived in a dorm knows, there are many ways to get into a dorm without using one's card, right? Students or you know people hold the door for each other all the time. It's very possible that Susie could have gotten into the building without actually using her card. But this did not seem likely because, as we said, her sweetmates never saw or heard her that at all that night. And based on the items found and not found in her room, it also did not appear that Susie ever returned to her room that night. Her glasses were sitting right on the bed where she left them. She had been wearing contacts and some cash was on the dresser. But Susie's backpack that she always carried and her wallet were not in the room. In fact, to this day, they have never been found. The prevailing theory is that Susie Lyle was abducted somewhere between the bus stop and her dorm. I mean, that seems like the only real likelihood, to be honest. The only plausible option from if assuming that the bus driver and the eyewitness are correct. Correct. Okay. Meanwhile, Mary Lyle was sitting home feeling helpless. She decided to call her daughter's bank 
to see whether she had left any kind of transactional trail. Now, this was around 3.45 p.m. on Tuesday the next day. At this point, Susie had been missing for 18 hours. Mary knew that Susie had a bad habit of using her ATM card often to take out small increments of cash, like $20 at a time. She called the bank and spoke to a woman who looked up her daughter's bank account information. Susie had about $120 in her bank account. The bank rep told Mary that Susie had used her ATM card twice on Monday, again, the day she disappeared. There were two transactions that day. Both were withdrawals of $20. One was at the ATM across on the bus stop where she would have gotten on the bus to go to work. And the next one was another withdrawal for $20 at the mall where she actually worked. And the time has been reported to be when she was arriving at work. It seems like she got $20 as she got on the bus to go to work and then $20 when she was arriving at work. Yeah, okay. Mary remembered that Susie had been concerned that she was running low on cash, but she had refused when her mom offered to send her some money to tide her over. But why would Susie have made two withdrawals on either end of the bus trip? That made no sense. But of course, there could be... Maybe she remembered she needed more money. I used to do that in college, too. I did small withdrawals and like I would take something Mm -hmm. out, spend it on lunch and then go, oh, I don't have any money for dinner. You know what I mean? Something like that. So I don't I don't know how suspect that is in itself. But okay, Yeah. But then something happened that was a bit chilling. And part of the reason why this case did become somewhat known. While Mary was on the phone with the bank representative, the woman said to her, oh, wait, I think that card was just used. Sure enough, while they were on the phone, a digital record popped up showing that someone had used Susie's card to take out $20. This was at 3.50 p.m. on March 3rd. And this is, again, Susie had not been heard for for 18 hours. And the PIN number was entered correctly on the first attempt. Oh, I know this is the next day, but where was the card used? Is it in the vicinity or is it somewhere far away? Like where? Yeah, so the card was used about two and a half miles from campus at a Stewart's convenience store. Now, this area of town where the Stewart's was located was not somewhere that Susie was known to ever go. Although Stewart's was a chain of convenience stores, this one was not in a location that Susie would, was known to ever frequent. Mary called the campus police and gave them the information about the transaction. The information about the pin being used on the first try had a few implications. Mm-hmm. One, of course, is that it could have been Susie using the car to take out her usual $20. Of course, you know, that seems like that maybe was strange since she was off the grid and not in contact with her family. But, you know, maybe she was, you know, somewhere, maybe she ran off somewhere and she needed some money. Another possibility was that it was Rich using the card. You see, Mary and Doug and Rich's family all sat down to discuss the state of affairs and the Lyle shared the info about the ATM card being used. When they did, Rich volunteered that besides Susie, he was the only one who knew her pin. It was like he was admitting that he could be implicated. It was strange. He didn't say, oh, I know her pin. He said, besides Susie, I am the only one who knows it. It was the beginning of the Lyle starting to suspect that Rich might have been involved. I don't know that this means much. Rich said that he knew her pin because he was the one who always drove. Remember, she didn't have a license. And when they went to a drive up ATM, he would often punch in the code for her. But there's also another implication that someone could have been holding her by force with a weapon and said, give me your pin number. Yep. Why would they only take $20? That's a weird thing. to raise flags. Yes, that's weird, though. Mm -hmm. Um, How much money was in there, though? Wasn't there not much in there as well? Like 120. Mm. Okay. Yeah, no, it's odd. For sure. I'm curious to see where you're going with this. 
We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. Remember that the campus police had gone to Susie's Tuesday class to see if she showed up. And of course she didn't. Susie had another midterm scheduled for the next day, Wednesday the 3rd. They went to that class, but however, Susie did not show up for that one either. This is when her parents really started to get worried, and it got worse when they got the mail that day. In it was an envelope in Susie's handwriting. Mary found that it was a birthday card for her. Her birthday had been Sunday. It was postmarked Monday the 1st, and it said, See you Thursday, Susie. After two days of fruitless searching for Susie and under intense pressure from her parents, the campus police finally called in the state police. They took the case seriously from the outset and came in and did all of the stuff that really should have been done in the beginning. Mm -hmm. The state police were the ones who spoke to the bus driver. They're the ones who figured out that Susie's key card had never been used to access her dorm that night. They also conducted grid searches of the campus and the surrounding areas. They brought in divers to search nearby ponds on campus. They seized Susie's computer. There was seemingly nothing relevant on there. Although they did note that Rich could access it remotely, but we knew that already. Yeah. They also contacted Susie's roommate who had left school. So first they sent a detective to Florida and then to Texas to talk to her. She didn't have much to give to the investigation, but this is just to illustrate that they were finally moving things a little quicker. Right. Most importantly, they pulled the surveillance footage from the Stewart's convenience store where the ATM card had been used. Oh, finally. As luck would have it, the video camera was positioned so that it did not show the ATM machine. It, it showed only the cash register and the customers who were paying. However, there's some information that could be pulled from this video. The video from Tuesday showed a lot of people at the register over the course of the day. But the one person who did not show up on the video surveillance footage was obviously the one they were hoping to see, Susie. Susie's parents had hoped that it was her who used the card that she was the one who knew the pin and took out the $20. Now, this does not mean that the person who used the card was not Susie. It just means that she was not seen on the video footage. Now, clerks on duty that day had no recollection of whether the girl shown to them in a photo was in the store that day or not. So this doesn't really answer many questions. She could have been there. She could have not been there. No, it doesn't. What police were able to do, they were able. the police were able to track down everyone who did use that ATM machine at the stewards that day. Everyone except one person. Now, all of these people were questioned and ruled out as having used Susie's card. The one final ATM user who they could not find, they believed withdrew cash from the ATM and then purchased a cup of coffee, a newspaper, and a lottery ticket at the register. And there he was on camera paying in cash at the register. Was this around the time that her card was used? That day. They don't say exactly the time, but I would imagine within... Yeah. It was a man wearing a Nike baseball hat who would become known as the Nike man. Now, police artists put together a sketch of the man seen on the grainy video and they began circulating it. The Condon family, that's Rich's family, they paid to have billboards all over town featuring Susie and the image of the Nike man. And eventually the Nike man contacted the state police and said that, hey, that was me at the store that day. This guy's name has never been released publicly because he is not a suspect, but You know, he had a tough time. The police discovered that he was a cook in the dining hall at SUNY Albany where Susie went to school. Keep in mind, it's a huge school, though, so there's a good chance these two never cross paths. I know SUNY Albany, Amy, just so you know, because I Mm -hmm. applied to it. You did? Yes. When I was considering going to a state school, it was one of my top choices, so I, I actually know very well. Oh, I did not know that. 
That's because it was about, about 100 years ago. So, <laughs> um, The other thing that piqued the interest of the police is that Nike man had been convicted of a violent rape in the Troy area in the 1980s and had served some time in prison. Oh, yeah. So that's because a big, of, big red flag here. Okay. Because of these two pieces of information, the police interviewed Nike man many, many times. They watched the tape of him at the convenience store. Apparently, he had paid for his coffee, paper, and lottery ticket with a handful of $1 bills. There's absolutely no indication that he had used Susie's ATM card to take money out. And he also had an alibi for the night of her disappearance. As such, Nike Man was cleared. Dead end. Okay. I had a feeling we were going in that direction, but okay. Yeah. Susie's family offered a $15,000 reward for information about the disappearance of their daughter. Remember that we said the police conducted a grid search of the area of the campus around her dorm in the bus stop? Yes. Well, they claim that they searched the whole campus, which is over 300 acres. But when they initially searched, there there was a lot of snow on the ground. I mean, it's Albany in March, after all. And there had been a big snowstorm right after Susie disappeared. In May, there was a development as the snow melted. Oh, no. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. Two students were walking on the street right near the bus stop where Susie was last seen in the heavily trafficked visitor parking lot. And there, sticking out of a small pile of sand, you know, sand and salt are used to melt the ice. So, you know, that kind of sand. There was an ID card. It was a Babbage's employee card, the kind with a pin on the back so that it could be pinned onto clothing. It looked a little weather beaten and the pin was rusted, but the name on the card was Susie L. Okay, so this seems evidence that she did make it off the bus. To campus. Yes. But, Megan, it was found 30 yards in the opposite direction of the path mm-hmm. that Susie would have taken to her dorm. Okay. I mean, of course, it could have been moved by a snowplow in the two months since Susie had vanished. Or she could have gotten off the bus and headed to the library, which was in that direction. Maybe she dropped the card. Um, there's a lot of reasons why the card could have been there. But Mary says that Susie would never do that. Susie preferred to study in her room. And Rich backed this up. Something that makes this more strange is that this was not Susie's current Babbage's card. This was the 1997 version. In 1998, the company had replaced the pin cards with lanyard IDs. Now, the finding of this card raised a lot of questions as to whether Susie had perhaps gone to the visitor's lot to meet someone after she got off the bus. And guess who told police that he sometimes picked Susie up there after work? Her boyfriend, Rich. Yeah, but Rich told police repeatedly that he did not meet up with her that particular night. And then Donna, his mother, said, you know, something occurred to her. She says that she she claimed that she was very safety conscious. And she said that she had given Susie a safety tip about a year earlier. She recalls telling Susie that if you're ever abducted, drop a personal item so the police know you were there. Now, is it possible Susie had the old ID in a pocket and managed to drop it? But, of course, that begged the question, well, then who was she abducted by? Mary Lyle agreed that Susie was very careful and that she would have screamed if someone attacked her. She said she knew to yell to attract assistance from people nearby. Yeah, but you can also, I mean, we've talked about this. Someone could be totally petrified and not make a noise. Or incapacitated and not able to. And also with that um, ID card, I just want to point out, I know you said they issued new ones, but maybe she didn't get a new one. Maybe she had the old one. You know, that's not to say for sure that she had a new one. Yeah, I'm not sure why that's such a point of um, focus, but it seemed like to many people that was an interesting piece. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, 
but not surprisingly, police were not able to obtain any usable prints or DNA off the card. You know, after all, it had been sitting outside in the elements for two months. Mm -hmm. Now, this visitor parking lot where the card was found, it was in a very well-lit and bustling area on a busy street on campus. And as I mentioned before, at 945, you think it would be busy, you know, students coming and going. That's pretty early for a college campus. So this would lead some to think, how could Susie just vanish from this area without anyone seeing anything? Mm -hmm. She could have been abducted as she walked the path through the small wooded area between the bus stop and her dorm. But if her mom was right, would she have screamed? Who knows? As we said, there's many, you know, there's things we don't know. But I think it's safe to say that if she screamed on a busy college campus at 945 at night, somebody would have heard it. So then that begs the question, did she get into the car with someone willingly? Ah, so that could have been, yeah, instead of assuming a stranger abduction, it could be someone she knows. So if they're assuming it's someone she knows, and it seems like they're considering Rich, what do we know about him and their relationship? I mean, I know it was codependent, but was there, is it also tumultuous? Is there fighting? What's going on with these two? Good question. So they, as I mentioned, they'd been dating for about three years before Susie vanished. And to everyone, their relationships seem committed and loving. But as I mentioned, some say codependent. And the Lyles, having no one else to blame for their daughter's disappearance, they were looking at Rich. Mary, in particular, began to reflect on Susie and Rich's relationship and remember that there were some rocky times, sometimes where she felt that Rich was a bit controlling and times where Susie may have wanted to get out of the relationship. There was also potentially this one time where Susie had broken up with him for a few days. So is it possible that Rich was more controlling than she had thought and maybe had harmed Susie if perhaps Susie tried to leave him? A lot of the information we gathered about their relationship came from the Upstate Unsolved podcast, who did multiple episodes on this case. Oh, okay. Mary recalled one incident when she saw Rich operating Susie's computer drive remotely. He seemed to have full access to her entire life and the ability possibly to watch her from his own computer. Mary and Doug also felt that Rich was not as emotional about Susie's disappearance as they would have expected. Well, I mean, they already don't like him, so I understand. They they have an idea of what, you know, this is almost, uh, what, what's it called? It's like tunnel vision, right? Confirmation bias. Confirmation yep, bias, vision. right. Uh-huh. So uh, this makes sense that they already uh, feel this way about Rich, given the information or how they felt mm-hmm. about him before. Mary also recalled a time when she was in the car. This was about two weeks before Susie vanished. And Susie stopped by Rich's house and handed him an envelope. Susie told her mom it was a Valentine's Day card. But now Mary wondered if perhaps it was a Dear John letter and maybe it enraged Rich. Okay. Um, But this is all total speculation on Mary's part. Now, Rich was the one who reported Susie missing and he raised the alarm with her parents. I mean, could this have all been a ruse to make it appear that he was concerned and innocent? Who knows? I mean, police investigated his alibi. When asked where he was on the night of March 1st, he said he was at his parents' home. He was playing video games online with his friend Justin. His parents and his friend Justin confirmed this. But also the computer, the computer itself would confirm this, too. I mean, there's got to be an online record here. That's interesting you say that. Remember, he was a computer guy. So there was kind of like a bot version that he could have programmed to play for him. But Justin said... The moves in the game were similar to that of Rich, not the bot Rich. Okay. I mean, let's say Rich did this. It would have really required next level deviousness and planning for Rich to pull off being 
both places simultaneously. Recall, phone, phone records confirm that the call from Rich's home phone to Susie's dorm room that night, the nine phone calls. So he had to be home to make those calls, not out somewhere disposing of Susie's body, unless, of course, he had his parents in on this elaborate plan. I don't think so, though. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, the senior investigator on the case was James D. Horton, and he told the Times Union, quote, we felt immediately that Susie was most probably a victim of foul play, and time has not helped to change our mind. In fact, it has made us feel even more strongly. Now, Horton got to know the families pretty well, and it has to be said that he found the Coden's behavior to be odd at best and suspicious at worst. There are several examples of Rich and his parents acting strangely. Now, it's the kind of behavior that can be totally innocuous. Some people might think is weird or could, they could be hiding something. Obviously, we, we don't know what, which is which, which I, you know, I don't think we have the right to judge it then. But here are some examples of things that came to light involving Rich that at least raised the question to some people as to whether or not he could be a suspect. Donna Rich's mom tried to make it appear that she was super close with Susie saying that she knew her better than her own parents did and that Susie didn't really care for Mary and Doug. Now, this was not true, but Donna, for some reason, felt the need to undermine Susie's relationship with her mom. Now, Mm. this doesn't point to guilt or complicity, but it does show a level to which the entire family was really vested in this relationship with Susie. So perhaps they would cover for their son by providing an alibi? Some thought so. More along the same lines, Donna moved heaven and earth to enable Susie and Rich's relationship. As we know, she picked up Susie at Oneonta and brought her to their home. She also would drive them on dates, sometimes sitting in table at tables behind them. The Lyles felt that she was somewhat overstepping her bounds and almost seemed hell-bent on bringing Susie into their family. Now, perhaps she just really liked Susie. I don't think this is much to think about. I don't know if it's evidence of a crime, but I will say she does seem a little overly involved. Yeah, she also wouldn't allow um, her son to speak with any investigators alone, even though her son was an adult at this point. Now, it's unclear. Was she trying to protect her son from something? Was she just being overbearing? Um, Something else that was discovered by Horton is that Donna and Dick, Rich's parents, they lived in separate rooms in the house. Um, So Dick stayed in the basement and Rich had his own room. But when Susie visited each weekend, Rich would give Susie his room and he would sleep in bed with his mom. Um, Some found that this to be problematic, given that he was a six foot one, 200 pound adult male. I mean, it's weird, but again, not evidence of a crime. Yeah. Something else that was not normal is Rich's father seemed to have these like sightings of Susie where he would call he would call police and say that he saw her. And at some point they started to follow him undercover cops to see like what was going on. Rich's dad called in again and said, I see her. She's sitting on a park bench. Little did he know that he was being surveilled and the, the undercover cops saw exactly what he saw. And it was just a random woman who was about 80 years old who was sitting on the bench. So now, uh, sorry, this is that's suspicious. I'm going to say everything else is is a little odd, but I think that's suspicious and really well, odd. Listen, it, it's either he was delusional or these, quote, sightings of Susie were a poor attempt to misdirect the investigation. Right. Now, he refused. Uh, Rich refused a polygraph and he never spoke to the police alone. As I mentioned, his mom was always there. After a few months, he stopped talking to investigators altogether and lawyered up. 
In fact, the family all lawyered up in the fall of 1998 when they realized that they were under police scrutiny and they did not at all speak to the media. Now, the home and vehicles were searched and presumably they were processed for forensic evidence. But unless they found actual blood or Susie's missing backpack, there was likely not going to be a smoking gun. I mean, everyone knew that Susie spent a lot of time in their home and in their cars. So hair and clothing belonging to her would be expected. Rich Condon eventually married and moved on with his life. However, he still maintains the website he set up for Susie, which contains a letter to whoever took her, Susie's poetry and photos of the couple. If you're interested, it's at darklight.com slash Susie, S-U-Z-Y. And now a brief word from our sponsors. So, I mean, it doesn't sound like he was definitely cleared, but he moved on. Uh, Are there any other suspects? Is this an unsolved case? It gets very interesting, Megan. Some say it's an unsolved case. Some say it's not. You'll tell me what you think. But there really aren't any other suspects in Susie's case. And her disappearance is seemingly completely inexplicable. Really, other than the ID and the ATM card usage, police have nothing. However, there are many people with a theory. There are some who firmly believe that Susie is a victim of Israel Keys. Oh. A most mythical serial killer who died by suicide in jail in December of 2012. Now, we know very well the True Crime Bullshit podcast has done some tremendous work on Israel Keys and particularly linking Susie's case to Keys. So we're going to lay out the evidence for you now and you can decide for yourself. Okay. So a little background for those of you who are not familiar with Israel Keys and his M.O. You teach about him, Megan? I In Serial Killers, I do cover him briefly, but he's not someone that I do a deep dive on. So I am curious to hear a little bit more as it pertains, especially to Susie's case, because I would not have thought of him. Many might not realize, but Israel Keys was quite possibly the most methodical and calculating serial killer in U.S. history. Now, many of you may have heard of the kill kits that Keys would bury around the country in preparation for crimes that he would commit years later. Now, he would actually fly to cities across the U.S., often leaving no record of his travel. He would rent a car under an assumed name and drive thousands of miles to find a victim to kill after picking up one of his kill kits with everything he needed such as guns, rope, zip ties, credit cards, cash, duct tape, and so on. He would select victims that suited him at random, the ultimate crimes of opportunity. There are few to no witnesses who ever saw him stalking his prey, and somehow he was able to make people just disappear. He was like a phantom who swooped in, grabbed a stranger, and made off with them silently without a trace. As a result, his crimes are almost impossible to pin down, and we have no way of knowing how many victims he actually killed, much less where and when he did so. But in 2012, Keyes had been killing for years, and he started to come unraveled, and he screwed up in an uncharacteristic way. He abducted, raped, and murdered Samantha Koenig from a parking lot coffee hut in Anchorage, Alaska on February 1st, 2012. While he says he disposed of his other victims immediately, often in a different state than that in which he abducted them, he kept Samantha, storing her body in an uninsulated shed in his backyard. He left her there for two weeks while he went on a cruise with his long-term girlfriend and his daughter. 
When he returned from vacation, he dismembered Samantha's body and dropped the parts into a frozen lake through a hole he cut into the ice. Investigators found it, but only because Keith told them exactly where to look. And before he killed her, Israel made Samantha give him the pin to her bank account. After Samantha was dead, he sewed her eyes open and took a photo of her with a newspaper and used it to prove to her family that she was still alive. And then he extorted them for $30,000, directing them through hidden mysterious notes to deposit the money into Samantha's account. Once they did, he went on the run using Samantha's ATM card to make withdrawals as he moved across Arizona, New Mexico, and then Texas. And in a very rare slip up at one of those ATM stops, Keyes accidentally allowed a bit of his white Ford Focus to be captured on surveillance video. An all-points bulletin was issued, and Texas Highway Patrol pulled over a white Ford Focus matching the one seen on the video footage from the ATM. Inside the car, they found Samantha's ATM card and cell phone. Keyes was arrested and never saw the light of day again. But before he died, he spent months talking to the FBI. Right. I, I suspect I have a clue, but what does this have to do? What's the linkage between Keys and Susie? All right. It's interesting. Well, once he was arrested, the FBI spent months trying to get information from Keys because it became apparent very quickly that Samantha was not his first victim. The FBI agents buttered Keys up with treats and favors to get him to talk. But Keys was not impressed. His whole attitude was one of boredom, as if he was barely even tolerating their cluelessness. He told them only just as much as he was interested in telling them, which really was not a lot. So rather than betray all his secrets, he died by suicide in his cell on December 1st, 2012, leaving investigators to try to piece together the remainder of his crimes. He is believed to have killed approximately 11 people, but nobody knows for sure how many victims he really had. Many believed it was a lot more. Now, Back to your question, a predominant theory that has emerged among both followers of Susie's case and those studying Israel Keys is that she was possibly one of his victims. We have quite a bit of information about the possible connection between the two thanks to the incredible amount of work done by Josh over at True Crime Bullshit. Israel Keys claims that his first abduction was in 1997 when he was just 19. He says this was a teenage girl that he abducted and raped while she was white water rafting on a river in Oregon. It being his first such attack, he lost his nerves about killing her and he says he let her go. But his murderous fantasies, which he says also as a child, he liked to abuse and kill animals, had been given life and this was the beginning of his career as a serial killer. Mm. He told the FBI in 2012 that he had been two different people for 14 years. The experts who have spent years studying Keys agree that it is very likely that this means his first successful murder was in 1998. Now, that happens to be the year that Susie Lyle vanished. Also of interest, Keys owned a property in Constable, New York. Now, this was a 10-acre rundown house that he had purchased in 1997. He was staying at this location during the time period in which Susie was taken and was very familiar with the area, having spent time there as a child. And as an adult. Now, this location is about 200 miles from SUNY Albany. Remember, though, his MO was to drive for miles to find a victim. Mm -hmm. He would later go on to rob a bank in Tuper Lake, New York in April of 1999. He also buried a kill kit about three hours away from SUNY Albany. Okay. So Keyes told investigators that one of the ways he managed to avoid detection was to commit 
the abduction, murder, and disposal in three different states. Albany, New York is very close to the borders of both Massachusetts and Vermont. If he took Susie, she could easily be in one of these two states if he stuck to his M.O. Susie had mentioned to her coworker about a month before her disappearance that she thought she was being stalked, but she didn't know who the guy was. Unfortunately, we don't know anything more about this claim, but Keyes did admit to watching his victims carefully to select the ones he wanted. I'm assuming there's also the connection that he, uh, what I heard was because he made women um, input their PIN codes into ATM. So I'm thinking that's a connection. Yep, we will definitely get there. That's going to be one of the biggest connections, I think. Okay. Keyes was spotted in the exact area of, of SUNY Albany campus in March of 1998. After Keyes was arrested in 2012, an attorney for the U.S. State Department said that when his face was broadcast on the national news, she recognized him from an incident where she had been loading packages into her car in a parking lot of a Marshall store in Albany. And this was on a night in March of 1998. Mm. She says a young man with wavy dark hair, um, who, who she says looked like Beaker from the Muppets, which many say Keyes did, approached her and stared at, and stared at her intently. Then he asked her how old she was. She responded, how old do you think I am? And he turned and walked away. The young man's stare was disconcerting and his face was burned into her brain. When she saw Key's arrest on the news 14 years later, she was 100% certain that it was he who spoke to her that night, recognizing both his face and his voice. And the FBI believes her account is true. Okay. Okay. But to just add a little more weight to that eyewitness testimony, the marshals in Albany where this happened is across the street from the Army Recruit Center where just a few months after this incident, Keyes would go to enlist in the Army. So we do know that he frequented the area. Okay. That's another connection, yeah. Yep. And you ready for this one, Megan? Okay. Both places are located on Central Avenue, the same street that the Stewart's convenience store where Susie's ATM card was used. It's just two miles down the road. That's a big one. Right? And the Marshall's incident occurred in a parking lot, and Keyes admitted that he often sat in his rental car and stalked out parking lots when trolling for victims. Remember, Susie's ID was found in the visitor's lot across from the campus where she lived. Right. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. Okay, now let's get to that ATM card that you mentioned. Yep. Recall Susie's ATM card was used to take out $20 after she was abducted, and the person managed to avoid using a machine with a surveillance camera. Now, Keyes told the FBI that he was very careful to avoid machines with cameras, and he often used his victim's ATM cards after getting the pin out of them through torture, just as he had done with Samantha Koning's ATM card, in which he took $20 out. Or For the final um, connection people have made between Susie and Israel Keyes is... It's pretty compelling. On his computer, the FBI found searches that had been conducted for 44 missing persons. This list of names appears to be a combination of his victims plus other missing person cases that he was interested in. He admitted that he studied the crimes of others. We know that at least two of his victims are on that list. And guess who else's name is on that list? Susie Lyle. Susie Lyle. So that, along with finally, Keyes had admitted to killing one New York State victim. So you take all these things together, you have a decent case. Um, 
Of course, Megan, the statistical odds that the infamous serial killer Israel Keyes abducted and killed Susie Lyle are very, very low, right? Of all the people in this country and Canada, because it's believed he had some victims in Canada, like what are the chances that he grabbed any one specific person? You know, the chances are so low. However, I think there's just enough there to make us think that perhaps it's not too unlikely after all. I agree. And what are the chances that she would be on his computer search and... I think there's enough to establish a potential uh, connection, especially in light of, you know, not having any other explanations or other suspects. Sadly, if this is the case, it is almost certain that Susie Lyle will never be found. We know that Keyes went to great lengths to be sure that his victims were not located. And unfortunately, his secrets went with him to the grave. Now, it's worth mentioning another case that shook Subi Albany because when Susie went missing, it felt a bit like deja vu. Because in 1985, 13 years before Susie disappeared, a SUNY Albany senior named Karen Wilson vanished without a trace. She was last seen on Central Avenue. That's the same Central Avenue where the Stewart's convenience store is located. She was at a shopping mall a little over two miles from campus, and she had purchased some clothes, but she never showed up to a tanning appointment that she made. The last known sighting of her was at 7.20 p.m. Reports say it is believed that she decided to walk back to campus and was abducted near the entrance ramp of I-90. What was freaky was that Karen Wilson lived in the exact same dorm building as Susie, the Colonial Quad Dorm. Karen remains missing and there has been no movement on her case. It is, of course, unknown whether her case is related to Susie's or if it's just a terrible coincidence. Right. After Susie had been missing for several years, Mary and Doug established the Center for Hope. This is an organization designed to provide support and assistance to other families of missing persons and advocate for legislation to expedite law enforcement response to missing persons. The Center for Hope also helped create New York's annual Missing Persons Day. This is observed on the Saturday closest to Susie's birthday, which is April 6th. The nonprofit organization also helped produce and distribute 55,000 drink coasters to area restaurants and roughly 30,000 decks of playing cards to all county jails in New York. The coasters and cards all featured cold missing person cases, including Susie's. According to the Times Union, the Center for Hope also worked in tandem with New York officials to create the Investigative Guide for Missing College Students and collaborated with law enforcement to publish What to Do If a Loved One Goes Missing, a guide for left-behind family members. The Lyles were directly responsible for getting some significant legislation passed at both the state and the federal level. New York's Campus Safety Act was signed into law by then-Governor George Pataki in 2000. It requires all institutions of higher learning in New York to formalize plans for investigating a missing student or violent offense committed on campus, and it eliminated any waiting period for an investigation into a missing student to be launched. Good. Finally, right? Exactly. Enacted soon after Susie vanished, the Lyles hoped that the law would make it so that no other parents would have to go through the agonizing situation that they encountered, where Susie's disappearance was sort of dismissed by campus police and there were no protocols in place for contacting law enforcement. Basically, this law requires New York State colleges and universities to become more prepared for similar emergencies and to report missing person cases sooner. If Susie's missing person report had been submitted to the New York State Police when she was first reported missing, additional evidence may have been found. But Megan, the Lyles were not done. They pushed for legislation on the national level. 
In 2003, George W. Bush signed Suzanne's law into law. This amendment to the 1990 Crime Control Act required police to alert the National Crime Information Center when a person under the age of 21 goes missing. The former age was 18. It also eliminated any waiting period in a missing youth investigation. Then in 2008, Bush signed an amendment to the Higher Education Opportunity Act. The amendment was called the Suzanne Lyle Campus Safety Act, and it requires colleges to have written policies specifically focused on the role of each investigative agency, campus police and local and state law enforcement. And this is when it comes to investigating violent crimes or missing persons on campus. A year after Susie was taken, Doug Lyle wrote a letter that he published on his blog offering a $25,000 reward for information on his daughter's whereabouts. The letter was addressed to the person who took Suzanne. Here's a piece of what he wrote. Quote, I often wonder whether March 2nd means anything to you. Do you remember the 19-year-old young woman that you took from us? Do you still have her with you? It has been nearly a year since she vanished, but she is just as loved and dearly missed. Do you know the person you took? Susie is a very creative person and is inspired to write poetry that seems to flow in from outside of herself. She is a shy but friendly person whose warm smile and easy manner can cut through other sadness and put those around her at ease. Her sense of fairness and loyalty to her friends are well appreciated by those who know her well. You took away a wonderful person. And the full letter could be found at SuzanneLyle.com. Suzanne Lyle remains missing. Sadly, it seems that we may never know what happened to her. Her father, Doug, passed away in 2015. Mary Lyle continues to work with the Center for Hope and still remains optimistic that someday she will receive answers. The New York State Police remains the lead investigative agency on the case. CBS 6's Ann McCloy spoke with former lead investigator John Camp in 2018. He said at the time, quote, We believe it's a homicide. Is there a chance she moved away? It's a possibility. But the reality is that she's probably been the victim of a homicide. Suzanne Lyle is five foot three and weighs between 165 and 175 pounds. She has long reddish brown hair and blue eyes. She has a brown colored birthmark on her left calf and a mole on her left cheek beneath her earlobe. She has a surgical scar on her left foot. Susie is nearsighted and wears glasses or contact lenses. She was last seen wearing a long black trench coat, blue jeans, and a black shirt. She might also have been wearing a polished 14 karat gold fluted bow ring a frog-shaped silver ring, and a necklace with a silver medallion inscribed that resembles the letter S. If you have any information related to the disappearance of Suzanne Lyle, please contact your local authorities. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode, and we hope that you will join us next time on Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.